In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Giles Fraser, who's a priest and a, a writes for The Guardian in, in London, uh, wrote an article a few years ago with this provocative title, Christianity, when properly understood, is a religion for losers. Did you get that? Christianity, when properly understood, is a religion for losers. He goes on to add, the Christian story like the best sort of terrifying psychoanalysis, strips you down to nothing in order for you to face yourself anew. For it turns out that losers are not despised or rejected, not ultimately. In fact, losers can discover something about themselves that winners can never appreciate. That is that they are loved and that they are wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they achieve. So the resurrection, he concludes, is not a conjuring trick with bones. It's a revelation that human worth, your worth, is not indexed to your success. Christianity is religion for losers and failures. I hope you haven't missed the fact that this week is the second gospel story of a Christian loser, a Christian failure. Did you get last week's gospel was the story of Thomas who doubted, right? This week's story is that of Peter. Now, the last time, uh, well, just let me remind you, a few weeks ago on Good Friday, Peter is the one who, standing around the charcoal fire as Jesus was going through his passion, his suffering, he renounced Jesus. Interestingly enough, in today's gospel story, the only other time in John's whole gospel that he has us at a charcoal fire is this week when Jesus invites Peter back into fellowship. What an amazing storyteller. So today's topic, Christian failure. What do you do with failure? What have you done with your losses in life? We fear it, we dread it, we plan and prepare and rehearse and study, all in hopes of avoiding failure and loss, but it comes for each of us, doesn't it? Right? In our parenting, in our careers, um, in every possible aspect of our life, failure comes. And is it just you or is it me that it doesn't matter how many cliches I know about failure being the path to success. It doesn't matter at that point, because in the midst of my loss, what I feel in my bones is confusion. How could I have done that? Anger, this is not fair. Guilt, maybe just sheer shame. It's not that I have failed, but I am a failure. That's shame. I am a failure. So what does God do with failure? What does He do with loss? The story of Peter, John 21. Take your scripture, follow along with me. You'll find it on the back of the announcements. This story from John 21 about God restoring Peter, the failure, the first failure of all of us, the the first of many failures. 
Let me give you three ideas to look for in this passage as we study what God does with failures. First, look for an appearance of the risen Lord. In Peter's story and in yours, an appearance of the risen Christ. Here's the second component to look for, a repaired attachment. By that I mean a repaired intimacy, renewed connection, right? And here's the third component of God's restoration of failures. It's a new assignment. So, an appearance of Christ, a renewed attachment with Him, and then an assignment for us. Here we go. First, a risen appearance of Christ. Now, this is a story. This is a story of the third time that Jesus appears to His disciples after the resurrection. Similar to the other two, we have Jesus um, who, who they, they encounter Him, but they don't fully recognize Him, at least not until He breaks bread with them. It's almost like the gospel writer wants us and the early Christians who read this story to know that when we get together like this around the Word and the table, that something very special, dare I say miraculous, happens. Look at the text. Notice Jesus' appearance. It happens by His own gracious initiative. The, the, the text says, He showed Himself. As it were, Jesus might have been around a lot, present with His disciples in the days after His resurrection, but this time He decides to show Himself. He decides when He shows up, and He does it as God always does. He takes the initiative. Jesus' appearance is not just of His own initiative and His grace, but it happens on the shore. Um, John's gospel is one with layers upon layers upon layers of symbol. So, where does Jesus show up? It's not for nothing. He shows up on the shore, the stable place. And that time and day, the, the sea, the water was this abyss, this dark place of chaos, evil even. So, you have the disciples in the chaos, and you have Jesus on the shore, just a heads up, when you fail and you want to know where God is, He's on the shore waiting for you. That's where He is. The risen Christ appears. It's mysterious. At first, they don't recognize Him. This is important for how we engage the risen Christ, but then His appearance is made known, almost like recognizing Jesus in the veiled host and the chalice, right? His appearance precipitates Peter's great, very receptive response. He jumps in the water and runs toward Jesus. His appearance comes with a miracle of lots of fish. They couldn't catch anything all night. These are professional fishermen. Why they couldn't catch anything has something to do with Jesus with withholding this, and now Jesus shows up and He blesses them with an abundance of fish. So let's put it all together. Peter and the rest of the failures, Jesus comes to them on His own initiative. He comes to them waiting for them on the shore. He blesses them with an abundance of fish. It's miraculous even, and He serves them breakfast. Friend, if you failed spiritually, if you feel like you're a failure and you want to know where God is and what His posture is toward you, John wants you to know from this story that Jesus is waiting for you on the shore, 
and he's got breakfast ready. As Christians, you know, we believe that with the rest of the historical church, that in the Word, in the gospel proclaimed, and at the table, that the risen Christ, though veiled, is present. This is why when the gospel is, the gospel representing Jesus Himself is uh, processed out into the people, we, we bow to it. It's not to a book, it's to the risen presence of Christ. This is why we say, praise be to who? Praise be to who? You, Lord Christ. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. This is why when the host is raised, often some among us will make an act of worship, of adoration. It's not to the bread. It's to the risen presence of Jesus Christ. Though veiled, He is here. Pope Benedict, now Pope Emeritus, said a few years ago, he said it like this, Christian worship isn't just a commemoration of past events or even a particular mystical experience. But essentially, Benedict says, it's an encounter with the risen Lord. For while Christ now lives in the dimension of God beyond space and time, He is also with us now here as He speaks to us in Scripture and as He breaks bread for us at the table. In short, while the risen Christ can appear anywhere He pleases in the 21st century. This is what the church wants you to know. You can count. The one place you can count on Jesus showing up is right here on Sunday mornings in His Word and at His table. P.S. This is why we come to church. So have you failed spiritually? Have you failed spiritually? God invites you to experience the appearance of the risen Jesus Christ right now, today. That's the first mark of God's restoration. Here's the second. He repairs the attachment between himself and Peter, and he wants to do the same for us. Notice in the story that Jesus doesn't just appear to the disciples, he actually engages them. Particularly, he engages Peter. It's almost like you wonder, did Jesus have this all planned out, that he would appear to the disciples, do this miracle, and basically get Peter in a one-on-one with the disciples around? Was this his plan? Was he coming after Peter? Was he pursuing Peter, the one who had failed him? Notice his question. And by the way, notice how many times he asked the question. What's his question to Peter? Do you what? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? How many times does Jesus ask Peter that question? How many times did Peter renounce Jesus on Good Friday? Imagine your friend, your partner, the one that you've wronged, seeking you out, and then upon finding you, serving you breakfast and asking, how's your loyalty to me? Do you love me? If if it were me, I would be stammering, Jesus, I'm sorry, I, 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 no, do you love me? Jesus doesn't want to talk to Peter about the past. He wants to talk about their connection right now. Do you love me? As a therapist, I cannot help but think in the world of psychology about attachment theory. Now, hang with me. Attachment theorists have this assumption about human connection. They study 
attachment, starting with babies and mommies and going all the way through. Attachment theorists say that um, in human relationships, what defines connection and intimacy is not so much the nature of some kind of rupture or break between two humans, but it's the nature of the repair, of the coming back together. It's not the rupture, it's the repair. When there's been a rupture in a relationship, like a traumatic break in connection via a betrayal, an affair, a lie, outside stressors, a fear, whatever it is, what determines the success of the relationship is not the failure but the forgiveness, not the rupture but the repair. Brothers and sisters, today the risen Christ doesn't just show up in our presence. He is coming after us, and He wants to know, how is our connection? How is our connection? He doesn't want to hear about your failure. He doesn't want to rake you over the coals, drown you in guilt. He doesn't want to know maybe why you haven't been here for weeks and weeks and weeks or something. He wants to say, can I serve you breakfast? Can we talk about our relationship? I'm so glad you're here. This is the second mark of God's posture toward us in our failures. He did it for Peter. He does it for us. Now, it doesn't just appear. He wants to know about our attachment. Here's the third and final lesson from John 21 about God's restoration of Peter and us. This last point is significant, a renewed assignment from Christ. You have a purpose. Peter has a purpose. That is to say, Jesus does not consider Peter damaged goods. You failed me, now you're worthless to me, right? He was not unusable to Christ. He was not without a future purpose or without gifts for God's church or responsibilities for God's church, and neither are we. By the way, if the rest of the Scriptures have anything to say about this point, that God uses broken instruments… It's that perhaps He only uses broken instruments, right? He only uses damaged goods. So, welcome to the party. Notice near the end of the passage, Jesus connects Peter's love for Him with Peter's labor for Him. He connects Peter's worship, do you love me? Yes, with His work. This is service. What is Jesus asking Him? Serve me and my people. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Service. Then he goes on. Jesus tells him, and with kind of a grim prediction, how he's going to give his life for the Savior. Someone else will gird you, Peter, lead you where you don't want to go. So, what's Peter's assignment, his new assignment after his failure? Service and sacrifice. What's your assignment? Yes, you have failed. We're all in the same boat. What's your assignment? Please know that it comes out of the appearance of Christ, and then your attachment with Christ, and then you get an assignment. We know from church history, of course, that Peter's service in the early church was not only significant but foundational. He would go on to lead the church at Rome. Roman Catholics consider him the first pope. There's a failure for you. And what about sacrifice? History tells us that Peter was crucified just like Jesus and for Jesus, but upside down, feeling unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. Listen, friends, 
while Peter was given the assignment, this renewed assignment as a one-time failure to serve God's church, your assignment may be different. I've got good news for you this morning. God will probably not call you to be the Pope. Everyone, you can breathe a sigh of relief. But what is your assignment? What is your assignment? I don't suspect that Jesus has ripped open the clouds for you and given you like a written to-do list in life. When I say assignment, I mean don't relegate this to preachers and priestly folk. What your assignment is for Jesus as a failure who's a follower is to wake up tomorrow and to serve Him and to sacrifice for Him in your office with your children, in how you use money, in how you use your sexuality, in how you interact with people on Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it. This is your assignment, right? So when Jesus asks, do you love me, then do your assignment out there. He means, what are you going to get up to tomorrow morning on Monday and put your hands to? That's your assignment. That's what He's called you to. Now do it with all the gusto of a failure who's been welcomed back into fellowship with Jesus. You're not damaged goods. I close with a, a poem from Lucy Shaw. Lucy Shaw, a great, a great uh, poet who happens to be a believer. Her poem is called simply Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. It's brief. Because we are all betrayers, taking silver and eating body and blood and asking guiltily, is it I? And hearing him say, yes, it would be simple for us all to rush out and to hang ourselves. But if we find grace, if we find grace to cry and to wait, after the voice of mourning has crowed in our ears, clearly enough to break our hearts, He will be there to ask us each again, do you love me? Amen.